Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, Regenerates. Welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. I'm really excited to be bringing you all this interview with Bill Plotkin, who recently published a fantastic new book called The Journey of Soul Initiation. You may be familiar with Bill's other works, such as Wild Mind, um, He's definitely been a, an inspiration to me through the years in sort of reinventing a, a psychology based on a deep nature connection. So um, hopefully this exploration of sort of the inner and personal side of um, transformation and regeneration will be helpful. And um, I do want to just note that I've been getting um, feedback from folks about uh, audio quality issues, and we're going to be doing our best to um, upgrade the software that I use to, to do my podcasting, to make it easier for my guests to be recording locally as well, and sort of mixing that together with a minimum of sort of production time and uh, I, I got myself a new mic and we're sort of taking some other actions. I'm also going to have a friend um, do some post-production work and engineer the sound quality a little bit. So um, hopefully if you happen to be listening to this uh, sometime in the future, you, you, all of the past recordings will be of great quality. And for those of you who've been uh, who've been with me here on the journey, my apologies for um, discrepancies between the audio of myself and my guests. I've been slowing down on producing these podcasts. I've been thinking about a lot. I've been really busy. We're leading up towards mainnet launch right now. Region network and uh, have a lot of other things going on. Um, but I'm hopeful to be able to get back into a weekly rhythm, maybe even quicker. Um, and I also think pretty soon I'm going to publish a little bit of a monologue just looking back over the last couple of years of the podcast of Region Network and of the journey that we've all been uh, this last year especially has been pretty pretty wild. So um, I hope you all enjoy this one. I am excited to bring you Bill Plotkin. All right. Um, I am so grateful to be able to introduce uh, Bill Plotkin um, for the first time here to the podcast and uh bill it's an honor to receive you i um yeah i was so excited to hear from your publicist um that you were interested in uh hopping on the podcast it was kind of actually a sort of a peak moment for me um i've been a longtime fan so and your work has been i mean fan isn't quite the right word <laughs> your your work has been really uh, meaningful to me so um i'm really excited to dig in and talk about the role of cultural regeneration in service to planetary regeneration here on the podcast so thanks for joining us uh thank you gregory for saying all that and um it's a pleasure to be in conversation with you thanks yeah yeah, fantastic. Well, as we were chatting before we kind of hit the record button here, 
um, you were just mentioning a, a couple of things that I thought might be good starting places. Um, mm-hmm. One of them is maybe these are sort of two threads that I, and I, my intuition is maybe there's a couple of other threads. And once we weave them together, we'll have a full strand. <laughs> but the two okay. threads that you mentioned, one was that um, you really see cultural regeneration as maybe the most important element for us to achieve planetary regeneration, but something that's oftentimes forgotten and maybe misunderstood. So I'd love it if you'd start there and just explain what you mean by cultural regeneration and maybe why you think it's getting missed. And then we can kind of go deeper from there. Great. Okay, so um, I'm with uh, Animus Valley Institute here in Southwest Colorado. Um, We've been doing this um, work that we think of as cultural regeneration or cultural renaissance for 40 years now and um, offering experiences to people all over the world, much of the world, maybe 20 different countries now. Um, And yeah, the, the piece that or the realm in which I work uh, resides is, has to do with uh, personal development, helping humans um, come into their, come into our full magnificence as humans, that as our innate promise um, enables us to do. And it um, has seemed to me for quite a while that um, when it comes to planetary regeneration, um, there's so many urgent pieces that are being that visionary people and organizations are working on all around the world. And uh, you and your listeners to your podcast would probably easily um, list these like uh, uh, changes in infrastructure, like energy and politics and economics, um, education, religious systems, and on and on. But from our perspective at Animus Valley Institute, an essential piece, maybe not the most urgent piece, but ultimately for humans to contribute to the enhancement of life on this planet, we need to address our crisis. I would call it a crisis of human development, which is to say that, um, and this is a kind of a radical thing to, to say, and maybe even more radical for people to hear. I believe that in most contemporary societies, there has been a situation in which we're suffering from arrested human development. That in a certain sense, we never, that relatively few people mature to true adulthood and true elderhood. And I think we're in a situation now where we see this problem in cultures all over the world. Um, And in the Western world, this problem is probably thousands of years old. And if it's true, if it's, if we're suffering culturally from arrested human development, and this is thousands of years old, we wouldn't, it would be even hard to know it. It'd be hard to understand, well, what does it really mean to be a mature human? Because it's been those, um, the strands of that process of development has been missing in our contemporary cultures for so long. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like when people hear the word maturity, you know, most of us get a certain sense of what 
is being talked about, but I'm not talking about what most people would imagine. So for example, when we think of human maturity, we might think of having certain responsibilities or having developed certain virtues or certain skills like nonviolent communication, or maybe some people think a mature person is someone who doesn't get drunk too often or doesn't lose their temper too much or something like that. I don't know if that has anything to do with maturity at all. So I'm not really saying we're, when, in a sense, I'm not saying that we're immature because the, the concept of immaturity is, would be different than the one I'm using. So um, for me, uh, what I mean by a mature human, a, a true adult, or an, uh, let's just stay with adult for now because elder is something different. Uh, a true adult is someone who experiences their membership primarily as being in the more than human world, which is to say the, the larger earth community. That's where I really belong in this, this um, magnificent enchanted web of many, many species and habitats. And I am a member of that. And that person, the true adult, also has had one or more visions or revelations of their particularly unique place in that earth community, in our larger earth community. Not primarily a vision of what my career is gonna be or my job or my creative project or my social role, not that but what my actual ecological niche is. Mm -hmm. And third, uh, the true adult not only has had one or more glimpses through of that unique niche through um, a vision or a revelation, an experience I call soul encounter, but of course they're also embodying that as a gift to not only their people, but to the larger earth community. So a true adult is in service to the the planet in a certain sense, or at least to their ecosystem. And that's where a true adult gets their deepest experience of fulfillment is by uh, occupying that niche or um, delivering that their unique gift to the world. Wow. So what you're saying is that it's that, that uh, our success as uh, individuals may may not have anything to do with how well we do in the stock market or how well you know how how popular we are with our community or you know how well we nail our nbc language when we're uh in the midst of a you know a, a, an arduous conversation with our spouse but it may actually be that our fitness or our meaning is, is oh that's interesting that's interesting Sorry. Sorry, let me see what's going, see what's going, on, going here. on here. Okay, can you hear me now? I can hear you loud and clear. And I was just, um, as, as the audio uh, feedback started happening, I was just kind of reflecting back uh, how I was hearing you speak about maturity and the role of maturity uh, and and. I use, I oftentimes use a phrase, my listeners will be familiar with this phrase of humans as a keystone species, which is, um, I, I think, resonant with what you're talking about, in which humans are, we, we are embedded in and not just stewards, but we're, we're, an, we're an active participant in the greater than human world as you're speaking, and in, in a way that's not centered on us necessarily. Like, you know, like a wolf is a keystone species, but the whole, 
the whole ecosystem does not revolve around the wolf per se. They're just an important, you know, element in playing certain ecological roles. And something that you were speaking about really resonated with me in my experience of, um, in several experiences of my life, but just sort of pinpointing that it's not, I don't know how to put this exactly, but I think what you're inviting us to consider that is radical is in some ways that the definition of human success has very little to do with how other humans perceive us, whether that's success in being a great business person and, you know, uh, winning at finance or um, mastering the subtle arts of NVC and being able to communicate clearly. That's actually not what you're talking about. You're talking about how we serve and are a part of a, a, a much bigger world and that that somehow somehow our civilization seems to not quite have even the words for some reason as and you were talking about this this may be pretty deep in our particular cultural lineage that somewhere along the line we uh you know in quotes in the west sort of branched off and uh, our, you know, the bar of adulthood started getting lower and lower and lower until being adult or being mature had to do with, you know, how well you could fight somebody or, you know, how, how beautifully you could speak. And it had less to do with how uh, knit into the greater than human world you were, perhaps, uh, as a, and, and how you were knitting your culture into the greater than human world, even, not even the individual there. So, I mean, A, is my sort of reflection and rebuilding what you're saying in my own way, does that resonate? And B, you know, after, you know, after we get to sort of a shared understanding about that, I'd actually like to sort of take the branch of this conversation, at least briefly, that leads into the past around what meaning do you make? You know, what is the history or her story around how this all came about? Um, so, you know, I'm curious to go on that branch pattern, but before we go, is how I'm reflecting back, does it feel resonant or are there, is there ways that I'm showing some gaps that you could help illustrate and go deeper for me and the listeners about how, you know, inviting us to consider maturity in this new way? Yeah, it's very resonant, Gregory, but I'd like to sharpen some of the points. Um, Great. There's some important distinctions here. So, um, Okay, background is that um, after several years of um, guiding initiatory programs, this is back in the 80s, and stumbling around and, and, and trying to offer initiatory experiences for people, um, I discovered that um, the maps of human development that I had learned as a psychologist, because that's my original training is as a psychologist, and I was, uh, had a psychotherapy practice for about 20 years or so. But the maps I've learned in Western psychology for what it is to develop as a human being was not helping me at all uh, work with uh, the people who are coming to our experiences, our initiatory experiences. And so I ended up um, starting over with my understandings of human development. And I ended up using the template that is found in cultures all over the world. It's, we could 
probably presume it's a universal, universal template and it's based on natural cycles. Um, and so I mapped the stages of human development, my understanding of the ideal stages, the, the stages we're meant to go through onto the four cardinal directions and um, the four seasons and the four times of day, sunrise, noon, sunset, and midnight. Um, so I use this template that is found all over the world to ask, what, is, what does wholeness look like when it comes to human development? And I ended up after several years with a map I call the Eco-Soul-Centric Developmental Wheel. It has eight stages uh, of human development, two of childhood, two of adolescence, two of adulthood, two of elderhood. But this map doesn't correspond in any significant way at all to anything in Western psychology. Um, except things like this, that adolescence starts with puberty. Puberty being a, really a psychosocial change more than a physiological one. That's a common understanding in the Western world, by the way. Um, and so to try to start really answering your, your question here, Gregory, it's my understanding that most contemporary humans, certainly those of us in the West, get stuck in early adolescence and we don't progress beyond early adolescence, no matter how long we might live. We don't even make it to late adolescence. And so again, what I mean by adolescence is not the same thing as most Western people would understand. But I do mean the stage, the psychological stage that starts after puberty. And in early adolescence, the, the task, um, as I understand it, the developmental task is to create a social presence that is both authentic and socially accepted in at least one peer group. And by authentic, I mean uh, a successful early adolescent understands what their true values are, not just the ones they might have learned from their parents or the ones that their peer group seems to embody, but what's really matters to them, what they live for, what they would die for, what really counts, what, what they consider to be sacred. And an early adolescent is someone who understands their emotions and embraces all of their emotions. A healthy early adolescent does not think any emotion is toxic. There's no such thing. Even shame is not toxic for a healthy early adolescent. And, and um, that person knows how to experience their emotions somatically. And they're, and they're able to assimilate those experiences and learn from them and express them and... Uh, and make their social relationships good through, in part, through their emotions. These are just, so I'm just giving a couple of examples of uh, authenticity. Also, it has to do with knowing what our interests are and where we draw the line and to uh, limits and what we feel okay about and so on. So, um, and then the second half of that task of early adolescence is being uh, creating a, a social version, version of yourself that's accepted in at least one peer group. Um, and that task, the combination of authenticity and acceptance, social acceptance, is really challenging, especially in the contemporary world, because of the developmental failures in childhood, which aren't so much our fault. It's because our family patterns or educational systems or communities more generally are not set up anymore 
to really support children in their full development. Um, and so we get to early adolescence with deficits, for example, uh, a deficit in being able to be fully present in the moment. That's actually an early childhood uh, developmental task that our parents and families are supposed to help us with, but often are under-equipped to do that. And with the current uh, world of um, cyber devices, uh, our capacity to be present has, is, is exponentially decreasing. And so it's hard just to be present. And if we're not able to be present to ourselves and others, then it's hard to create uh, intimate empathic relationships with other humans. Um, and it's hard to be uh, even empathic with ourselves. So we get to early adolescence after puberty and um, we have trouble knowing what our actual authentic self is. And because of that, we get stuck in early adolescence. But in a healthy early adolescence, the things you were giving examples of, well, some of them anyways, Gregory, are important things like um, developing our, our social relationships, um, starting to get good in the territory of romance and also sexual relationship. Um, developing a way, at least in the Western world, developing a way to um, uh, make a living, um, contributing to our communities um, in just obvious basic ways of helping out people who need help and so forth and so on. Um, the stock market, that's a real aberration for all kinds of reasons. But some of the other things you've mentioned, that it's normal and healthy to for an early adolescent's life to be all about their social life and maybe developing uh, skills that they can make a living with or at least contribute to their um, community. But in the larger scope of human development, as I've attempted to map it onto natural cycles, again, I call it the ego-soul-centric developmental wheel, early adolescence, it's, its primary purpose, it's not only purpose, but its primary purpose is to give us one, like, um, walk around the, the block of creating a social presence uh, persona, uh, a way to be in the world that is authentic to ourselves and is not merely a copy of, of what our parents uh, taught us when we were children. It's important in childhood to learn a value system and a worldview from our parents, absolutely essential that parents are letting down their children if they're not presenting uh, one particular way of being human in the world. But when we go through puberty, then we have to create our own way. And if we merely conform to our peer group, we're not doing that. If we merely rebel against our parents and the quote-unquote establishment, we're not creating our authentic self. And that's, again, this is the where people get stuck in early adolescence. But again, the the, in the largest scope of human development, the point of early adolescence is to learn how to create an authentic social presence because we're going to have to do that again in early adulthood. But then the question won't be what would allow me to be accepted in our, my peer group, but rather what kind of social vocational presence or vehicle can I shape that will allow me to bring my unique gift to the larger earth community, including my human village.
because that's what becomes important in, in true adulthood, not um, scoring, you know, social points as the most popular. So there's a couple of things that emerge for me as I'm listening uh, that that I'm curious about, and the most, you know, as a as a father, the most. Uh, urgent one that emerges for me in my heart as you're talking is the relationship, what I would sort of paint broadly is the relationship between personal healing and collective healing and the dilemma that we have around, this sort of circles back to where we started the conversation, the, the dilemma and the importance of, of cultural regeneration, not just personal healing or personal actualization. It's not just about me being more comfortable as an adult or something. I have this sense, right, that I am almost biologically incapable, in fact, of providing the conditions whereby my son and daughter as little ones, you know, they're um, going on four and two years old, you know, there's sort of this cliche, it takes a village right? I'm incapable of providing a village myself. I can only do that in a cultural context, right? And we live in conditions in which it's very easy to be isolated as a nuclear family and, you know, have work and all these dynamics. And you're, you're talking about the consequences of that in terms of development, right? So there's this crux that I experience that I've long, you know, uh, held the tension around this, around how, what's the right relationship between, you know, one, one's personal, uh, sorry, I'm going to go on one little, more little side paradox that I believe is part of this puzzle. One cannot initiate oneself, right? One must be initiated by the others or the other. And that could be the, that could be nature. That could also be a culture. Um, so that's a paradox. There's the paradox around the personal, you know, uh, I guess hero's journey of development and how that fits into a, a deeper cultural matrix and how we strive for cultural regeneration in order to create the right conditions for our, our children to, grow up in a way that is gives them access to layers of maturity that perhaps I, in the way that I was raised, will struggle to attain or have trouble attaining. Um, maybe I still can, but I, I actually have the sense that maybe there's things in terms of full human expression that, you know, I, I kind of, I may not attain. So that's sort of a a clumsy way of um, trying to build a little seat for, for the question in my heart, which is around um, how to dedicate, how to, how to have some capability or capacity to engage in cultural regeneration, not just personal development and what the relationship is, because I'm not saying it's binary there, but what the relationship is between those, you know, it's like Russian dolls or something, the, those nested layers. What's the relationship in your experience? I know you deal oftentimes 
at Animus Valley with people like me, you know, and I know people who've gone through your programs um, going on soul journeys um, in order to bring something back to a community. I, I'm, I'm curious about how that individual versus community balance in our society, you know, how are you holding that? How are you holding the culture, the cultural regeneration element here in, in the work? Yeah, boy. Um, great question. So many strands to it and uh, so many places to go. Part of the answer, the framework again, is depends on what stage of development someone's in. That's really would underline my answer to almost any question you could ask is, well, it depends what stage somebody's in. Um, and again, the, this sense of stages, I mean, we don't even find it in hardly at all in Western contemporary Western psychology. But um, so one of the things you asked about was healing or, or you mentioned about healing. Um, yeah, personal development is not all about healing. That's one of the, the, the many, many radical points I end up having to make, that healing is really important. It's central, it's foundational, but it's not the, the largest part of personal development. And one of the fixations we have in the Western world is that is if personal development is primarily about healing, I'm all for healing. I was a psychotherapist for a few decades. And, um, but um, the work we do at Animus is primarily something that goes beyond healing, not that we're ever done with our healing journey. Um, but so in early adolescence, which again, most everybody over age 12 in the contemporary world is an early adolescence. And if, if you um, understand how I mean that. And in, Early adolescence is a lot of emotional healing that's essential. That's especially true in the contemporary Western world because there's so much wounding and woundedness, emotional, psychological woundedness, as well as other kinds of woundedness. So a lot of healing is important, but um, a even a healthy adolescent contributes to the world and contributes to their community. Uh, and healthy adolescents tend to do that in terms of style or fashion or um, like music and art. Uh, not that music and art isn't something that's part of later life as well. But one thing that's true of, a, of healthy adolescence is that they recognize, because they had a healthy childhood, they recognize and experience their kinship with all of the rest of life. And so a healthy adolescent is someone who preserves, who honors and preserves all of life, not just human life, not just the life of their peer group, I mean, to be, but all of the uh, other uh, critters in our watershed and in the world more generally. So um, right now, I would say, and I have said, that we don't even have a, a healthy early adolescent society. We have a pathological adolescent society. Sometimes I call it patho-adolescent or egocentric. Egocentric meaning it's all about me. Um, and, but if we were to move, which is the next step we have to make globally, if we were to move from an, an unhealthy patho-adolescent culture to a healthy adolescent, early adolescent culture, that would make all the difference. And the particular difference it would make is that we would move 
from life-destroying societies like we have now, I assume everybody listening to us knows we are in a dead-end, life-destroying society, and that's true of most societies around the world. We would move from life-destroying to life-sustaining. Now, that word sustaining or sustainability, that's a big and important word these days. And it's often as high as we're able to imagine our goal to be. We'd like to have life-sustaining cultures. And a healthy adolescent culture can be life-sustaining. And we have to address, of course, the loss of diversity, uh, the sixth mass extinction. We have to address uh, the pollution and the loss of habitat and uh, climate disruption, which is not our biggest problem, but it's one of them on the list, and so on. Everyone else could complete that list. A healthy early adolescent society, in other words, a society where anywhere close to a majority of people made it to an actual healthy early adolescence would become a life-sustaining culture. But here's one of my big points. Um, all of life, as far as we know, on this planet, is designed, if you will, is created, is evolves, not to merely be life-sustaining, but life-enhancing. That's the story of life on our planet, or the story of evolution, that um, species diversifying become more complex, that the kinds of relationships species, individuals within species can have with each other and others becomes more complex. Um, and everything, everything on the planet every species and every individual, every species does something to give away to others, to enhance the conditions for life to further evolve. So life is meant to be and designed to be life enhancing. Okay, now we have to take a pause and say, well, wait a minute. We're not doing that as a species. We haven't been doing that for hundreds of years, maybe longer. Are we an exception to life? How could it be that we're destroying life? We're not even sustaining life. Um, and then we have to start talking about, we're a real oddball species, a really interesting species. We're not the most important species. You use the term keystone, that's a, that's a good one. Um, but we're not the most intelligent species. We, our particular form of intelligence is not matched by any other species, but every species has its own form of intelligence that, that we as humans couldn't touch. Um, so um, you were asking about the relationship between individual development or healing and the collective in that in a truly healthy culture, a culture that has its share of true adults and true elders, it would be a life enhancing culture that we wouldn't just be sustaining life. We'd be, we'd be partners with evolution, which I believe is exactly what we're meant to be. Yeah. Conscious partners with evolution, which is to say we would be helping uh, Earth, uh, life, life on Earth evolve. But to be able to do that, one has to become at least a true adult, which I also call a soul-initiated adult, which is the primary thing our work is about at Animus Valley Institute and about my, it's the title of my new book, The Journey of Soul Initiation. It's, um, this book is a, a description of our work over the last 40 years, creating new contemporary Western 
approaches to the journey of soul initiation, which is a journey that I believe you find in all healthy cultures around the world. Um, but for it to be authentic, it has to be our own version. Hmm. So one of the core principles we've used at Animus is that we're not going to borrow any ceremonies from any other culture. Hmm. Um, what we do at Animus is not some version of, uh, of indigenous cultures uh, initiation ceremonies. Some of the things we do are you can find elements, you can find versions of them in cultures all over the world, but we've only used them if we find them like almost everywhere, including in our own Western tradition past. Um, but most of what we do is actually comes from the uh, Western traditions, the mystery schools, which have mostly been lost and forgotten. Um, so let's see, just to circle back to see if I made the main point I was trying to make here, that wonderful question, Gregory, is that um, the relationship between individual development and collective development, okay, yeah, let me say this, that um, it's not, I have come to firmly believe it's not possible to use our strategic minds to sit down together and create out of our cognitive minds a healthy culture. Mm -hmm. I believe we can create a healthy adolescent culture, but a truly healthy life-enhancing culture only develops organically mm -hmm. and develops through the work of initiated adults and true elders, um, that when initiated adults and, and true elders are interacting with each other, which of course happens in a healthy community, um, the, uh, there are new social and cultural systems that evolve, that emerge uh, through that interplay between uh, adults and elders and with each other. And so over a number of generations, healthy cultures either develop from an unhealthy one like ours, or if it has been a healthy culture all along, it keeps evolving. And mm -hmm. it evolves because of the uh, initiatory or revelatory experiences that late adolescents have that end up being the uh, initiatory um, uh, stimulus to get to true adulthood. Mm -hmm. So I hope that begins to respond. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's inviting me into, you know, just be, be a little bit more woven into the frameworks that you're holding. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess just sort of putting, naming the chicken or egg paradox of uh, uh, that, that I was, um, that, that, that many of us likely hold day in and day out around um, how we do this. And, and one thing you just invited, which seems to me perhaps important to transcending that apparent paradox is uh, approaching all of this without being limited by sort of strategic cognition or like our analytical brain and um, that, may even, you know, even to me and probably to most listeners at, at first blush, that sounds sort of, you know, maybe like an impossibility. I mean, even if I wanted to, how would I um, approach uh, thought without um, 
getting sucked into the sort of rational materialist strategic uh, brain. And I'd love to hear you speak about that a little bit. What, what does it feel like to be engaging with stewarding emergence without trying to command and control it? What does it feel like to be um, approaching the, this paradox from the position you're inviting us to consider is, is necessary for us? Yes. Okay. So first, um, I'll, I'll say again, this important piece that to get from a life-destroying culture or society like we have now to a life-sustaining one, our strategic minds are quite possibly enough. Well, our hearts, we need our hearts too, for sure. Um, but it, it is possible to sit down with a blue ribbon panel of culture creators and say, how do we get from where we are now to a life-sustaining culture, where at least we're not on this dead-end trajectory, where we're undermining the earth systems that um, we need to continue existing, and, and most species do. Um, so that can be a strategic uh, process, and it is. There's a lot of brilliant people and organizations saying, hey, we already know how to do this. And it's, right. as far as I can tell, it's true. We do already know how to do it. Right. Um, but we get so many of these patho-adolescent people in leadership positions who are making it really, really hard uh, to uh, embody. Okay, but then a truly mature, life-enhancing partnership with evolution kind of culture, that's a different kind of thing. And um, to answer that part of it, Gregory, I need to say some things about this journey of soul initiation, which is, again, the, the subject of my new book. Um, let me start with this, to say that our psyches have all kinds of capacities. And the ones in the Western world we know the best, the capacity we know the best is the rational mind, the strategic thinking capacity. Um, and our other capacities we haven't developed as well. Um, us, even our sensory capacities are not as developed as they could be. But the two others um, I'll mention that are really uh, neglected and suppressed in general in the Western world, and those are feeling and imagination, especially imagination, which might be our single greatest human power. And it is um, suppressed through our educational systems, our entertainment systems, now our, all our devices, um, our religious systems, our family systems, the fact we, we're not being raised, too many of us are not being raised by true adults and elders and so on. So the imagination, that deep imagination, um, which is so essential to creating healthy cultures is suppressed. And again, our feeling like both our emotion, our capacity to be in good relationship with our own emotions, but also feeling the sense of um, feeling vibes or, or, or feeling sense of what's going on in a, in a given environment that we may be in or a given relationship. So, but at the very deep levels of our human psyche, there is this realm I would call the soul. And the soul, what one thing the soul knows is what we're good for 
or what is worth doing in life, or why we were born. The strategic mind not only doesn't know that, but isn't capable of discovering that. This is a really important and radical point that we often ask ourselves in our early adolescent, patho-adolescent world, you know, what am I going to do in life? I want, I want to do something that has purpose, that has meaning. But we're asking that with our strategic minds. And in early adolescence, that's good. And we need to come up with answers. That's part of that first run around the block of creating a social presence that, um, is, that works socially. But um, the, the real reason each of us were individually born or our true purpose, I call it soul purpose, is something that's much deeper. And our soul knows that, but we can't, uh, we can't even discover that in early adolescence, and we certainly can't make it up. Um, we have to get to what I call late adolescence, the stage that the majority of Western people never get to, in order to access those deeper layers of the psyche, where we'll discover our, the purpose we were born to embody. Uh, in some traditions, that's called our original instructions. The idea that we're each born to take a particular place or to occupy a particular niche in our larger ecosystem. Not, in other words, that a place that's not definable in terms of a social role or a job. And our soul knows what that is. And we're born with that knowledge, that those original instructions. But we forget it through childhood. And we need to forget it because during childhood, we have to develop this thing called the human ego and a particular version of it that our parents and our village will uh, help us develop if we have a healthy village. Um, and then in early adolescence, we got to create our own new version of that. That's absolutely essential. Um, and we can use our strategic minds as well as our hearts and our feelings and our imagination to do that. But um, this deeper identity, the soul identity, is something that the ego can never figure out. It only can be shown it through an initiatory experience, uh, experience I call soul encounter. Um, and so in many traditions, we see something said, namely that there's meant to be a sacred marriage between the soul and the ego. That there's, um, there's something that each one, each of those two has that the other one doesn't have and that long it longs for. So uh, the healthy ego, and by ego, I don't mean anything bad, as it often is implied by some spiritual traditions. I simply mean our capacity for conscious awareness, our ego, that's all. Um, the problem in the world is not egos. The problem in the world are immature egos. Mm -hmm. And the, the journey of soul initiation is all about maturing the ego. Um, okay, so um, the ego the healthy ego swoons over the soul and feels this incredibly deep allurement to the depths, to towards the soul, because the ego knows, something, a healthy ego, a healthy adolescent ego knows something like this. I don't know what I was born to do in life. I don't know what my deeper meaning is. I could never figure it out, but my soul knows. And I, I long to embody my soul in the world. In order to do that, I'm going to have to have this encounter with my soul, which the price of which will be everything I ever understood 
life was about and who I thought I was and what the world was, that I'm going to have to sacrifice all of that in order to have this interaction with the soul. But a healthy late adolescent ego has that as a number one priority, encountering the soul, that, that deep, deep longing that's at least as deep, probably deeper for most people than the deepest possible romantic feeling with another individual human, which is great, but this is something that's actually even deeper. Um, so, that's, so that's why the ego swoons over the soul, because the soul knows what's worth doing in life. But the soul isn't capable of manifesting that. The soul doesn't have a strategic mind. It doesn't have hands. It has no way of embodying its gift in the world. So the soul looks at the healthy adolescent ego and, and swoons over the ego and say, that's, that's my match. That's the one I want to have this, in a certain sense, this spiritually erotic encounter with, because that ego can actually manifest my deepest desires in the world. So there's that sacred marriage. And during the journey of soul initiation, you might say that marriage is consummated. And um, the ego is blasted, if you will, by its glimpse of the soul's desires. And it's not a matter of thinking. If the, the human faculty that's most important there is imagination and the second is feeling. And then once the ego knows what its soul wants, then it can move towards embodiment. However, this is a really important point to make at this juncture to say that the encounter with soul is not primarily information. It's not like the soul says, hey, here's what I want you to do in life. And the ego goes, great, got the message, hang up the phone. I'll get to work on it tomorrow. Um, but the encounter with soul is such a, um, a deep and uh, troubling and psyche-altering experience that the, the, the primary value of the soul encounter or the vision is how it starts shaping, the, reshaping the ego itself. It, it's something. It's such a profound experience. It changes who we are and it takes some months or years for that change to get to the point where the person can actually embody that mystical gift in the world. Hmm. I, so as you're speaking about that, I mean, both, I find it very moving and I kind of can start to see an image. Um, you know, you're painting a picture in which I can see an image emerging which is very powerful. Uh, um, and, you know, I can, I, I would invite, you know, people listening as well to just like, see if you can see this working in your life. I, I, you know, as you're speaking, Bill, I'm, um, well, I, I just, I want, I guess I want to name um, and explore a little bit the the journey of soul initiation the recent book that you've just published and because i you know so sort of the disclaimer i i got a, a review copy which i'm gratefully digging into and i've found i can read only a little bit at a time and and it's it's such a profound sort of uh it 
it invokes such a profound response in me that I tend to pause and then <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, take it in. And, you know, sort of looking over the book, um, I believe it's accurate to say that you're, you're bringing people, you're sort of charting the phases of this soul initiation journey and, um, and sort of telling some stories about people who you've seen go through this, um, through these different phases in a way that invites us who are readers to sort of, you know, see ourselves in a way and the things that we may, the trials and the tribulations and the phases. So we kind of get a, you know, a bit of a map to understand contextually where we might be and, and uh, how we could, um, be present with that. And um, is that kind of an accurate read to your intention with the book? And um, do you want to sort of speak a little bit more explicitly around, you know, why this book at this moment, given, you know, the, the larger story and the importance of cultural regeneration and, you know, the framing that we've sort of unfolded over the, the course of the, the discussion up until now, why this book now? What is, what, what's the gift that you were invited to be giving that, that this book is, you know, aiming to deliver? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm first going to start with the loose end that is, um, I imagine it might be in a lot of listeners' minds, and then I'm going to get to that wonderful question. The loose end is that um, if you take seriously, if you are willing to entertain what I'm saying, that there might be some serious and pervasive developmental arrest in the um, in most contemporary societies, uh, and that we don't even have an understanding of what true maturity is in general in our contemporary world, then I can imagine listeners might go, oh, this is really hopeless. Um, we have to start with things that basic, I mean, how many, it might take a lifetime just to be able to get ready for this journey of soul initiation. So you can see why, where I'm going. I want to let listeners know that it actually doesn't take that long it doesn't take nearly as much time as you might think to um, address what we might call developmental deficits. And there's, the reason is twofold, is that we are designed by evolution to develop in these kinds of ways. And so we have the basic structures already in our psyches and in some ways in our societies to support us to do this, um, this early adolescent development, which is foundational before the journey of soul initiation starts, which happens in the next phase, late, ad late adolescence. Um, and the second reason it's not that hard is because virtually all of the practices that you find in my books for how to complete early adolescence are practices that we, and certainly in the Western world, you can find examples and instances of them all over the place in most communities. The problem is that um, it's not so much the lack of practices, but the lack of a map for understanding how all the pieces work together. And that's the primary thing, really, that's our primary uh, contribution, I believe, at Animus Valley Institute. It's not, it's not so much the practices, but the model of how all these pieces fit together, that what are what we call the facets of wholeness? What are the facets of wholeness? What are the, f and there are four, 
in our model? And what are the four windows of knowing that all humans are born to be able to use? Namely, thinking, sensing, feeling, and imagination. Um, and so what we tend to do in our early adolescent culture is that when we recognize or others recognize that we have a certain gift, a certain skill, we just keep cultivating that skill and, and get it as um, fully honed as we can. And we end up ignoring and neglecting the other aspects of our innate humanity that aren't so strong. So you see, if you have a model of what are the, four, the facets of human wholeness and what are the four windows of knowing, and then and you have a certainly a, someone to help you, maybe an initiated adult or an elder to say, hey, you're great in these dimensions, but here are your weak areas, and the weak areas are the ones you need to work on, not your strong ones. And if you end up, if you keep working on your strong ones, you end up stuck in early adolescence. Once you start working on your weaker facets of wholeness and your weaker windows of knowing and so on, um, you develop pretty quickly, actually, and get to this next stage, which I call the cocoon, that's late adolescence, in which the journey of soul initiation happens. So I meant that to be encouraging, that um, if you have an uh, adequate map of human development, you can actually develop pretty quickly, because it's in you to do it, and the practices are there, but you need the model to, to know how to do it. Okay, so then in the journey of soul initiation, which is really the entire next stage of life, late adolescence, I call it the cocoon, completely different than early adolescence. Um, in this, okay, why? Let me- Do you wanna just take a moment, just in terms of mapping for listeners, the, um, before you go there, mapping for listeners, sort of how your work um, maps onto this framework of, of early adolescence and late adolescence. Your, your pre what I'm hearing is your, a lot of your previous work were um, frameworks and and models for escaping the traps of unhealthy early ad adolescence. And is this the first work that is specifically focusing on, you know, in its entirety, the the late adolescence journey, the the cocoon, as you're talking about it, and previous is sort of, you know, the, the previous stage, or is that an inaccurate way of trying to sort of map your your works? Um, not quite accurate. Um, like my first book, which is called Soulcraft, mm -hmm. was just kind of an introdu introduction to the whole terrain of um, developing a relationship with soul or the init initiatory journey. It's kind of a, a big picture view of what has been missing in Western and other many other cultures for so long. Mm -hmm. The uh, crafting our relationship to soul. It's kind of a big picture thing. And the second book, Nature and the Human Soul, is that eight-stage model of human development. And it has all eight stages, so it includes the journey of soul initiation as one of its stages, namely the fourth stage, which I call a cocoon. Again, that corresponds to late adolescence. And my third book, Wild Mind, is a map it's a different, it's a different model. It's an actual, we call it nature-based map of the human psyche. It asks the question, well, what are the elements or dimensions or components of the human psyche? And what are the practices that help us develop 
all throughout the four facets of wholeness, the four windows of knowing, and also allow, learn, uh, enable us to learn how to heal ourselves, uh, which for us at Animus, that means discovering these parts of our human psyche that we call our inner protectors or our sub-personalities. And these are the elements of our psyche that developed, that our psyche itself developed when we were younger to keep us as safe as possible, especially in a, in a psychologically very unsafe world. And for so many people, a physically unsafe world. And um, these inner protectors are, you might say, I'm trying, trying to make a brief version of it, uh, they carry our woundedness. And in order to heal ourselves, which is much more powerful and goes deeper than being healed by someone else, which being healed by someone else is way better than nothing. Um, for self-healing, we need to develop our wholeness, our four facets of wholeness, um, because it's with our wholeness that we heal ourselves, which is to say we support our inner protectors to stand down, to, uh, to stop... Um, stop um, making our life smaller in order to keep us safe. So, and then this new book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, focuses in on that cocoon stage um, more than any of the other previous books. It's in all the previous books, but it really focuses in on the cocoon. And in particular, one specific spiritual adventure that is a necessary part of the journey of soul initiation <clears throat> which is what I call the, the descent of soul. So I'm going to say that again a little bit differently, that one of the absolutely essential experiences that happens during the cocoon stage, which is to say that happens during the journey of soul initiation, is this adventure, this odyssey I call the descent of soul. And it happens at least once. It has to happen at least once for the journey to be complete. And it can happen more than once. Um, I know many people have had two or more um, descents to soul during their journey. And a descent to soul can happen after the journey. In other words, during adulthood, you can have one or more additional descents to soul. But you have to have at least one during the journey. Because what happens during the descent, that's when we actually have that experiential encounter with the soul, which is to say, that's when we glimpse um, the purpose we were born for. That's when we glimpse our original instructions. That's when we discover what unique ecological niche we were born to fill. And so the book, this new book, is primarily about the descent to soul, and it, and it offers a new map of the descent that's different from anything I've had in my earlier books, and it's different from probably any map that any of our listeners has ever have ever seen. For example, it's not a rite of passage. And the, the map of rites of passage does not apply to the descent to soul. And it's not a Joseph Campbell's version of a hero's journey. Hmm. Uh, the descent to soul is something different. And in the book, especially for those who are interested in those kind of distinctions, is, is um, a chapter, an action, an appendix. Um, why, which difference, how the descent to soul is different from the hero's journey and from a rite of passage. Okay, so the book... Um, describes the descent to soul in terms of five phases. And again, this, the descent to soul is an experience that lasts maybe two weeks at an absolute minimum, but it can even last a year or more. This is not a short thing. And how long it lasts depends on 
the particular person's journey, how, much, how well they understand what's going on for them, whether they have a guide, an outer guide, whether they've accessed an inner guide through their imagination, and so on. Um, when we guide people at Animus Family Institute, a, a, a descent typically asks, lasts uh, a few to several months long. It's not short. And in the book, I've offered two analogies to help people understand the five phases of the descent. One is we call Soul Canyon, and that's like uh, walking to the Grand Canyon and then finding your way down to the bottom of the canyon and across the bottom and up the other side and then walking back to your people on the other side. So there's those five phases. Right? The, um, like walking along the uh, more or less flatland, like through the forest to get to the canyon. And then there's the descent. It's often a fall into the, metaphorically, into the canyon. And then what happens at the bottom of the canyon is the encounter with soul. And then going up the other side is what we call metamorphosis, which is the time when the ego is actually getting reshaped by the visionary experience. And then the fifth phase is enactment, when we start our early experiments with embodying our soul gift as, um, as something for our people in the larger world. So those five phases, the names of them are preparation, which is like corresponds to getting, walking through the forest to the canyon. And then the descent into the canyon itself or the fall is dissolution, where the adolescent ego is dissolved, which is a somewhat harrowing experience. And then at the bottom of the canyon is the phase of soul encounter when we actually have that experiential glimpse or encounter with the unique individual mysteries we were born to embody. And then again, that fourth phase going back up canyon wall is uh, metamorphosis where the ego is reshaped because again, soul encounter is not primarily the receiving of information. It's, it's an experience that actually, uh, you might say alchemically uh, shifts or reshapes our psyche. And then enactment is beginning to embody the gift to our people. And the other um, analogy that I use is that of what happens to a caterpillar in a cocoon. It literally dissolves, its body dissolves, becomes caterpillar soup. And then um, these cells that have been in the caterpillar all along that biologists call imaginal cells begin to create, to form uh, a butterfly or a moth body out of the recyclable materials of that former caterpillar. And when the imaginal cells wake up, that corresponds to soul encounter. That corresponds to the vision that we humans have. And the metamorphosis is, is the actual construction of the butterfly body. In our case, our bodies don't change so much during uh, the descent of soul, but our, our egos are reshaped. And then enactment for the butterfly or the moth is after the cocoon breaks open, the moth steps out and it needs to spend some time uh, before it can fly, uh, pumping fluid through its wings to, to um, flesh out, to form the uh, structures 
of the wing and it needs to flap its wings for a while, um, it's literally stretching its wings. And then once it's done that for a while, it can fly. When, it, when the butterfly flies with the moth, now it's an adult whose job is uh, pollination and procreation. And that should be true. For, uh, for true human adults, that's also true. That we're now pollinating the world with our unique gift. And um, in a healthy culture, people don't become parents until they're initiated adults. Yeah, so um, there's so much there. I mean, the image of the cocoon and the imaginal cells at work is such a, a potent one to hold. Um, and there's, I guess there's a couple of different, different threads here. One is, I'm curious if you, if, if you have the sense that, gosh, how, how do I answer this? Is there a collective soul? Do we have a societal soul? Does this metaphor hold at, at a societal level of imaginal cells and the cocoon and sort of the liquefaction and then re regeneration of a new form? So that's, that's one thing that I'd like to talk about. You know, how do these developmental models, maybe where do we get into trouble trying to extrapolate them out and, you know, and wonder, is it as above, so below, or, you know, how do we um, engage in that in that way? So that's one thing on my mind here. And, and I don't necessarily want that to distract from the, the richness of the personal journey either. And I have a couple of, you know, thoughts about that as well. But first, I'd love to just, you know, hear your thoughts on that sort of collective individual uh, relationship. Um, in, in the application of this type of thinking. Um, is it dangerous water that we just shouldn't quite tread because it, it has like false metaphors or is it something that is, that feels sort of grounded and useful for you, for us to yeah. be considering? Yeah, the, the metaphor um, or analogy can be useful, but we also have to be careful about it. Mm -hmm. I'll get to the usefulness in a second because there, I, I, for me, it has been useful in some ways, but it's also dangerous because Notice that, um, that an individual is a very different kind of thing than a society or a species. In particular, just I, I think everyone will get this, that individuals are born and die. We die. We go through a, a cycle, um, and it's, it's natural and in many ways essential that we die. But that's not necessarily true for societies, but even more to the point, species. Mm -hmm. Species aren't suddenly born and then they die. And the species can go extinct. But if a species is having a healthy time on the planet, it just keeps evolving. It doesn't die. And it may speciate. It may even be the progenitor of further species in that, uh, in that dance towards complexity that you were inviting us to understand earlier. Yeah, exactly. So there's these two kinds of time frames, you might say. There's the um, cyclical time frame, which is what we find in nature-based societies, including our own back when we were nature-based, where life goes in cycles. Like we're born, then we die, and maybe we're born again, and 
Um, and the seasons go in cycles or spirals, but it's a kind of cycle. Um, and that's, so that's true of individuals, that, that birth, death journey. But again, species and societies don't they're not that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That like, if we were gonna use the analogy too literally and say, okay, maybe we're kind of an adolescent society now, in some century, we might become a adult society and then we'll become an elder society. And then what, we die? So it's not that kind of thing. But no, we would just keep evolving. Mm -hmm. um, but there's some aspects of the analogy that I've found useful. And that's like, uh, for example, initiatory journeys. We could say maybe what's happening now for the human species is a kind of initiation. And many people have said this, and I think there's some usefulness in saying that, that we're going through um, some initiatory crisis. And just like individual initiations, there's no guarantee that they'll work out well. Like people can get stuck there during the cocoon stage, during the journey of soul initiation. In some uh, indigenous nature-based cultures that I've read about, it's expected that a certain number of, in this case, it's um, I've read about initiatory uh, processes for boys, a certain small percentage of boys die hmm. during the initiation process that is a matter of months if not longer. And we could say some species do well, but when they hit an initiatory crisis, some go extinct. And we might cause our own extinction if our initiatory crisis doesn't go well. And you could move out even larger to the planet and say, this is a thought experiment I've been doing for some years now, hmm. that Let's imagine that every planet that evolves a form of life that has conscious self-awareness, like us, like we humans have, which is to say that develop an ego. Let's say, it's easy for me to imagine that every planet that would, would evolve a species like ours, just in the sense of, regardless of how many eyes, hands, legs, and so forth, has self-aware consciousness has, has egos, that that's going to create a crisis for that planet. And some planets are going to get through that crisis successfully and become an even more effective life-enhancing planet than it was beforehand. And other planets are basically might lose most all of its biodiversity and may be able to redevelop that, re-evolve that again another several million years, 100, 200 million years or not. Some planets make it and some don't. Um, so see, that's an example of a way they think the analogy can be useful. And we are clearly, our planet Earth is clearly in a very serious initiatory crisis and we may or may not make it. But what we call um, life now, biodiversity now, may or may not make it. And some scientists are predicting, we're not gonna make it. And others are saying, yeah, it's not too late, we still could. And speaking personally, I don't know what the outcome is gonna be. Just like when I'm guiding an individual on the journey of soul initiation, I don't know if it's gonna work for them. I don't know if they're gonna get stuck along the way. 
Hmm. I don't know if I'm going to be an adequate guide for them at certain crisis points. Yeah, I think that's really uh, potent. And I think it's, you know, it's galvanizing, will, will building to understand. And I think maybe uh, an important part of, of uh, a soul initiation journey to have that sort of bridge burning experience of uh, this is sort of, this is sort of make or break for us as a, as a planet, as a species. I think that that, that is true on an individual level too. You, you reach a moment where um, you simply can't go back. There's no choice but to transform. And um, you know, that, that, that sort of crux moment of there's no choice but to transform ourselves or ourself uh, as an individual, I, I feel like um, is what gives me hope because I see people, I see, I've seen myself and I see other people when, when that, when we embrace the trueness of that, then, you know, um, change that we've been avoiding or procrastinating or <laughs> fending off at all costs uh, happens fairly quickly sometimes. So I, I tend to fall on the, the uh, you know, we'll do it because we have to side of the fence <laughs> on, on that. Um, just, I, I was having a very interesting conversation with a colleague of mine about that, you know, about the role of will and the role of doubt in that sort of dark night where, you know, you just, you have to do it or there's no other choice. So you just have to do it. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I'm all in on the, we just have to do it, Bill. <laughs> yeah, and again, there's these, I think there's two major steps the way I see it. The first step is just going from life destroying to life sustaining. Our strategic minds can make all the difference there. We just have to have the willpower to do it. It certainly would help to have as many um, political and, and business leaders who are on board, and that's, we've got a ways to go with that. But that can happen, and that's all, that's all before, really. It's a, really a different realm than the journey of soul initiation. Mm -hmm. um, so, and again, so I have to mention this thing again about stage, or, or life stage, that um, people who hear this, who are in what I call early adolescence, uh, a healthy early adolescence will, will try to see how their life fits this model of the descent to soul, but it, it won't in any useful way because mm -hmm. the descent to soul is not possible in early adolescence or certainly not beneficial. For example, in early adolescence, we, there is a lot of an appropriate focus on healing, or sometimes we would think of it as therapy. And the descent to soul is not healing. And it, not only is it not therapeutic, it's counter-therapeutic mm -hmm. in the sense that the descent to soul will undermine your social and vocational adaptation. It'll wreck whatever life you're living. And the way it works is that people don't get to the cocoon. They don't start the journey of soul initiation until they've completed early adolescence. And you don't complete early adolescence until you've been successful socially and vocationally. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, the reward for not only being successful vocationally, but being 
authentic psychosocially, which is to say that you really discovered who you are on a personality social level and you really embody your true values and feelings more often than not. The reward for that maturity is your life gets completely wrecked, totally destroyed. That's what happens when you make it to the next stage. Congratulations, you've made it to the cocoon. And that's what the elders are going to do. In a healthy culture, the el- there's going to be an elder who sees that you have had this uh, enormous success at early adolescence and that you're a, a really highly prized romantic partner and that your, your social style is being imitated by younger people and so forth. And you've really made it like some version of the American dream. And the elder sees you've gotten there. And so the elder comes by and says, congratulations, you're really doing great. We're very proud of you. And now you're leaving the village for some time. And you're leaving every role you've developed socially and your vocational shtick, it's over. And you're, you've heard about this, but you, maybe you thought it was never going to happen to you, but now it's going to happen to you. And we're going to take you away outside the village for this time of um, initiation. And you are probably thinking, this is a major bummer. I, I really had it made. <laughs> and life could not have gotten any better. Hmm. So you see, it's not therapeutic. It's not like the descent to soul is not how you take someone who is failing at early adolescence and fix it for them. It's not that kind of thing at all. It's counter-therapeutic in the sense that it's going to wreck your social and vocational life completely. Mm -hmm. Um, What's his name? Um, uh, T.S. Eliot has a poem in which he says, the price is nothing less than everything. Mm -hmm. So that's really... um profound and exhilarating and terrifying all at the same time. And, and, and I wonder what the, you know, who are those elders in our present society, elderless society, or, you know, or maybe there are elders out there, uh, but they're few and far between, right? Maybe not, not distributed, (laughs) not sort of scattered across our, our peer groups and social groups probably unlikely to find one on Facebook or <laughs> wherever people are doing uh, the bulk of their socializing these days, whatever the new village is, especially in the COVID world that so much has been virtualized so quickly. Um, are these elders inside of us and, and people need to be listening to signs of their own sort of um, their, the stirrings of their soul or, you know, um, their sub-personalities banging on the door <laughs> or something? Or is it, um, is it something that we really need that external kick in the butt that, that, might, have, that might be more uh, likely in a more sort of nature-based intact society? Yeah, great question. Um, first, let me say that the last... Uh, segment there, I was talking about the elders recognizing when someone is ready to um, go from early to late adolescence. Mm. That's a passage that I call confirmation. And I was speaking of elders will recognize it when that's true of somebody, and that is correct. Um, but also there are initiated adults whose work happens to be the guiding of the journey of soul initiation, which is what we do at Adams Valley Institute. And so it could be an elder who recognizes that you're 
going through the passage of confirmation, or it could be an adult who's who's does that kind of work. I, we call them soul initiation guides. So, but still, that's a great question, Gregory, about elders. Um, I believe there's very, very few true elders in our contemporary world, um, but there are some. And who knows, some might even be on social media trying to stir up elder kind of trouble. You know, it's mm -hmm. possible. I don't know. I've actually virtually never been on social media, so I don't know much about that realm. And by the way, leaving social media is a great thing for an early adolescent to do if they want to um, complete their developmental work. Um, social media can be great, but if you're addicted to it, that's a problem. Okay, so elders. Um, there are elders in the world. I give two examples in my book, Nature and the Human Soil, which is the book on the eight stages, eco-soul-centric stages of life. And those two elders are Joanna Macy and Thomas Berry, both of whom I know personally, or in Thomas's case, knew personally and spent some time learning from them. And so you can get two great examples of elders. You don't have to be famous to be an elder. Those just two happen to be two famous elders. But for any given person listening, you, there may not be an elder, a true elder in your community. And if you read Nature and the Human Soul, you get a sense of what a true elder is and, and, and you can start to look around on your own to see if there one might be some in, in your community. And uh, I guess everybody knows that an elder is not the same as a senior or a, a person who has reached a certain age. An elder is a stage of life that um, happens only after two stages of adulthood. Um, you can't skip from adolescence to adulthood. Okay, then there's the possibility you brought up, Gregory, that um, do we have elders inside? And I would say, yes, we do. There's an element of our psyches that, are, that hold this eldering function. It doesn't take the place of an outer elder, but it's a great supplement. But then there's the question, can we access the inner elder? We might think we have, but it might be something other than an actual inner elder. But Carl Jung, the depth psychologist, um, he went through the journey of soul initiation and he had no outer guides at all. No elders and no outer initiation guides, but he had inner elders and guides. And he was able to access them because he had developed his deep imagination so beautifully. I mean, each, each one of us is born the way I like to say it is with one of our four facets of wholeness um, relatively easy to develop. And Carl Jung's was his imagination, in my opinion. And, uh, and so it was through his highly developed imagination that he was able to access his inner guides, um, who, for those of you who read his red book, you recognize these guides. They include Salome, Elijah, Philemon, and later on, one called Ka, um, and then and also the serpent. So yeah, there's inner elders and inner guides. Um, in my this new book, I give examples of um, people who've gone through the journey of soul initiation without outer guides. Uh, Joanna Macy is one of them, and uh, Carl Jung is another, and. 
they had other support, you might say, uh, inner support and outer support to go through the journey. And in a way, it sounds like at Animus Valley, that's um, part of what you're trying to grow capacity to sort of serve for society as as guides along the way, as people who, who can uh, help. Maybe, you know, maybe because people kind of have to find you. So they may not have that elder in their, may or may not have that elder in their community that nudges them. But if someone sort of wakes up and, and uh, or goes through a process and realizes that there's, their soul is tugging them towards uh, an encounter, you know, it sounds like my impression is you're, you're trying to sort of create the, a container and have train up guides and a community that can sort of hold people through that process in a, in a way. Yes, that's exactly what we're doing. Our, our primary work is guiding the, the uh, descent to soul, the journey of soul initiation more broadly. And part of that is helping people prepare for the journey. And um, so when people come to us, if we feel they're in early adolescence, and by the way, we never share with people what stage we think they're in. But if it seems to us they're in early adolescence, we help them um, address the stage, sorry, the tasks of that stage and also the unfinished tasks from childhood which is true for most all of us we have unfinished business from childhood and those who are in the cocoon which we consider late adolescence um, those folks most always need some additional preparation work before they're ready for the descent but it's not like we decide if they're ready for the descent that uh, way we say we never push people off the cliff, um, that when people start to fall, we say, okay, we can help you with this experience you're having now. You're in phase two of a descent. Um, but we won't push. In some societies, um, guides will push. We don't do that. So let's see. Maybe I lost the thread there. No, that, uh, that, that's, that's... Oh, you're asking about yeah, animus. Yeah. That's our primary work is, is guiding the, the journey, which a lot of it turns out to be preparation work. And once someone is starting to go into free fall, then we kick into gear as, soul, as descent to soul guides. Hmm. 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 Well, um, this has been a really um, profound um, journey and I'm really grateful <clears throat> for yeah your generosity bill of just um sharing these insights and invitation and I, I think the the larger framing here around cultural regeneration and um stages of growth and kind of regrounding that in these natural cycles is really uh it's really potent and it's really um, I think the foundation for, for a conversation and for a focus of, of our society. That's um, well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that there's that many of the listeners who are listening will actually be um, maybe already somewhat familiar with your work or if not uh, now curious and I'm curious sort of close out as we approach the top of the hour, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about what is bringing you hope right now, 
what you see that, you know, glimmers or uh, magic or um, possibilities that, uh, that are just, you know, yeah, bringing you hope as you're doing your work in the world? Mm -hmm. Well, like so many other things I end up uh, talking about, it's almost like we have to stop and define the word again, like hope is one of those words. And people often mean, what do you see happening in the world that would lead you to predict things might turn out okay? But another, there's another sense of hope, and, and that is um, it's not a belief that things are going to turn out okay. It's something that really drives us and motivates us regardless of how we believe things will turn out. So, and it's that latter sense of hope that um, I can most relate to. And um, here's where I believe my perspective hope comes from. It, you might say it comes from the soul. That um, if you will accept or even entertain my definition of the soul, then hope follows from this. I don't know if I formally gave you the definition. I did indirectly, I know. But for me, um, soul is an ecological concept. It's not a spiritual or a psychological concept. For me, the soul of anything is its unique ecological niche. It's the, like the place or the function that we the thing has in the larger planetary system. And everything has its own niche and is born to take a certain place. And a niche is the full set of a thing's relationship with everything else. So it's really hard to describe niches because they're so complex, necessarily complex. It's the way we're connected to the web of life. Well, if you entertain this concept of the soul as our unique ecological niche, then what follows from that is that we are born to take a particular niche. We are born with a certain kind of knowledge that's beneath the surface of the rational mind. We're born with certain original instructions. Another way to say this is that we are literally born for these times. That earth gave birth to us with us having the potential to contribute to our times. That, to me, is hope. That means, you know, we, we all are familiar with the phrase, we were born for these times. Well, this is putting some flesh on that idea. Mm. Yeah, we are literally born to take a certain place in the world. And that's a place, it's a, it's a life-enhancing place because that's the way life works. Everything is born to enhance life. The problem with us humans is, again, we have this mode of consciousness that includes egos. And unless we live in intact, healthy, mature cultures, that, which means cultures that have that, uh, initiatory processes that help adolescents get to true adulthood, because it doesn't happen just, we don't get a free biological ride like every other species apparently does. Unless we have, we're born into a healthy culture, um, we may never be able to embody that gift we were born to give the world. So you see this, it's kind of a two-edged sword here that we, 
that hope comes from the soul, comes from the fact that we are ensouled. But if we don't go through an initiation process, whether it's one we stumble on on our own, like Joanna Macy or Carl Jung, or it's one we're guided through by someone who's the soul initiation guide, then that hope will never be embodied. The Buddha will never have it. So in terms of like predicting how things will come turn out, in that sense of hope, um, the fact that we are beginning to learn again how to create soul initiation processes, and by we, I don't mean just animus. We're at animus, we're doing our version of it. But hopefully there's, see, there's that word, hopefully. There's other people out there creating their own systems or revising or re-energizing uh, um, traditional systems that work for people of that culture. Um, that gives me hope. And, and then on this shift from a life-destroying society to a potentially life-sustaining society, um, I derive lots of hope from the, the brilliant visionary individuals and organizations that are creating systems for regeneration around the world. It's just that none of us know really how it's going to turn out. Yeah. Well, that was, um, I love the, the discernment there around kind of, um, you know, evidence, hope as evidence uh, of something that might be happening uh, versus hope as sort of this active, um, the active presence and invitation of, of being ensouled as a human. And that is such a potent, um, potent invitation, I think, to leave our listeners with, to contemplate. Um, yeah, so I'm really grateful for your time, Bill, and I'm, um, I'm enjoying sl slowly working through uh, the journey of soul initiation. And, uh, you know, I have to say, um, your first book, um, Soulcraft. Soulcraft, yeah. Soulcraft, Soulcraft uh, I came across Soulcraft uh, in my uh, very early 20s, and it was a, a very important uh, part of my journey um, at that time. And so, you know, um, I'm just really grateful for your gifts of, uh, of wisdom and of, uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, joining that, that echelon uh, with, with Joanna and Thomas of elders in our community that are holding space for, for all of us to, uh, to become more mature humans. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Gregory. I really enjoyed our conversation and the surprising turns that it has taken. Yeah, fantastic.